Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. All right, everyone, I hope you have all been following me on a weekly basis now that Military Murder episodes are being released weekly. I know, I took a two-year break, but I'm back. If, as some of you have told me, one episode a week is not enough, or if you just want to support the show, be sure to check out my bonus episodes, which can be found on patreon.com slash militarymurder, or you can find bonus content via Apple Premium Subscription. On both of these platforms, for just $5, you can gain access to 40 bonus episodes and counting. Also on Patreon, I do have different levels, so you could have access to a dozen more mini episodes and a dozen more current event episodes. And those are episodes where I bring you breaking news. All right, today's case is insane. And honestly, but for Netflix, I would have never, ever heard about it. In fact, just when I was browsing Netflix, I saw this case and I read the description. I quickly passed right on over. I was like, I'm not interested. But then someone encouraged me to watch it. And when I did, I was floored. Many of you know that I worked with victims of rape and sexual assault in my official military capacity. And the amount of victims whose stories are not believed, they're up there, these stories. And you might be wondering, what happens when the very people who are supposed to help you don't believe you? Research has shown that sexual predators don't just strike once. And unless they are stopped, they will leave a slew of victims in their wake. Join me today as I tell you the incredible story on how a sexual predator was taken down by a strand of blonde hair. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of rape. Listener discretion is advised. Now, let's dig in. Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning. This episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Some names in this episode have been changed to protect the identity of the victims. Their information is available online in news reports, but I didn't want to put it in here. On the evening of June 4th, 2015, a family of three, a mom, a dad, and a teenage girl, they were getting ready for bed. Let's call this family the Smiths. Their house was located in Dublin, California, which is a city west of San Francisco. The family were all in bed by 11 p.m. that night and everything seemed normal. But just after 3.30 in the morning, The couple woke up to a strange man in their bedroom and a light flashing in their face. The man told the couple that their daughter was okay, but he ordered them to lay flat on their bellies with their hands behind their backs. The couple obeyed, but the husband turned to try to get a good look at the man. He was again ordered to lay his head onto the pillow. Then the intruder walked over to the wife's side of the bed. He told the couple he was going to tie them up. And just as the intruder grabbed the husband's hands, the husband jumped out of bed and fought back. The wife took the opportunity to grab her cell phone and lock herself in the bathroom, where she quickly dialed 911 as the intruder and her husband fought in the bedroom. The husband was now face to face with the intruder. And that's when the husband noticed that the intruder was wearing a mask. Let's call the husband John. 
So John now tried to unmask the intruder and he was able to pull the mask down. But it was all happening so quickly that the only real thing he realized was that the intruder was a white male. During the struggle, John called out to his wife, get the gun, get the gun. Meanwhile, the wife, let's call her Jane, she's on the phone with 911. The intruder then continued to fight with John, and that's when he struck John over the head with the flashlight. The quick hit that lasted just long enough to stun John, and then the intruder ran down the stairs and out of the house. John started to feel wetness coming from his head, and that's when he realized he was bleeding. He put his hand on his head, but simultaneously chased after the intruder. He got down the stairs, but when he looked around, there was no sign of him. John was scared for his life, but he quickly used the restroom and then checked to see how the intruder could have gained entry into his home. And that's when he saw the sliding back door was slightly ajar and the front door, well, it was unlocked. Seeing that the coast was clear, John called down to Jane and she ran down the stairs, still on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. And that's when John told them what happened. Within minutes of the Alameda County deputy's arrival and just as the daughter was coming down from her room, She produced a white Samsung Galaxy cell phone that she said she found on the counter outside her bedroom. The police asked the family if the phone belonged to them and they looked at each other. They said no. They had never actually seen the phone before. The family believed it belonged to the intruder. That's when police tried to gain entry into the phone because maybe the intruder left his phone behind and maybe this would be an easy case to crack. But when police tried to open the phone, It was locked and it required one of those codes where you have to slide your finger in a particular pattern. The officer on the scene immediately got an idea. He used the emergency feature on the cell phone to call the police. And when he got through, he asked the dispatcher for the phone number that appeared on the caller ID. Authorities immediately ran that phone number through a law enforcement database, but they got nothing. So the officer assigned to the case got a search warrant for user information from Verizon. And soon, they got a name, John Zarbeck. Police looked up this John Zarbeck guy, and they learned that he had a house in Orangevale, California. But when they looked John Zarbeck up, he was a 72-year-old guy. Definitely didn't fit the description of the perpetrator in the Smith home invasion case. That perpetrator was believed to be in his 20s, 30s, strong build, tall, approximately 5 foot 11 inches, or maybe even taller. So authorities had to look into it, and that's when they realized that someone else was linked to John's house, his wife, Joyce, and his stepson, Matthew Muller. Authorities called John's house, and Joyce answered. They told her they found a phone, and they were wondering if it belonged to her. They just wanted to return the phone to the rightful owner. They didn't tell them the truth. Joyce informed the police that the phone actually belonged to her son, Matthew, but her husband, John, paid the phone bill. Matthew had told her he lost the phone earlier that morning. They asked if Matthew was available to talk, but Joyce told them that he was staying at their other house in South Lake Tahoe. Joyce was like, listen, guys, I'm going to talk to Matthew later today. Maybe he can just swing by and pick it up later. Authorities were like, "Okay, that sounds good. They soon hung up. They had to get to Matthew Moeller at that Lake Tahoe address before Matthew figured out that they would be coming for him. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. 
but I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Now, at this point, in addition to having the presumed perpetrator's phone and location, the Alameda County deputies did a thorough sweep of the Smith home. And there they found zip ties, duct tape, and a fabric glove. Before doing the old sneak attack on Matthew Muller in South Lake Tahoe, authorities ran a background check. And wouldn't you know it, he had been investigated by the Palo Alto PD for burglary, criminal threats, robbery, and attempted sex assault. But he had never been arrested or charged with those crimes. So within days of the home invasion, Alameda County deputies had a ton of information. And when they reached out to the El Dorado County Sheriff's Office, which had jurisdiction over the South Lake Tahoe property, they learned that that police department found a stolen vehicle by Matt Muller's South Lake Tahoe house. The stolen vehicle was a 2011 Ford Mustang that had been stolen on January 3rd, 2015, five months earlier, and that vehicle had been stolen from Vallejo, California. When the El Dorado deputies searched the vehicle, they found Matt Muller's driver's license under the front seat. Alameda County deputies used this information and they obtained a California State Ramey arrest warrant. They also obtained search warrants for both of the houses associated with Matt Moeller and the stolen white 2011 Ford Mustang. On June 8th, police arrived at Matt Moeller's South Lake Tahoe home with a no-knock warrant. They busted in and arrested Matt Moeller without incident. It was 7.15 in the morning. The South Lake Tahoe house was cute from the outside, Single-story, two-bedroom, one-bath, 800-square-foot cottage. But when authorities walked inside, it was a pigsty. Sporting equipment thrown about, half-leftover food on the floor, clothes all over the place, and it was just straight nasty. Some items that detectives took for further analysis were an Asus laptop, a digital keymaker, blank car keys, and a pair of two-way radios. Within an hour of his arrest, Matt Muller told investigators a little bit about himself. 
He was a former Marine, served from 1995 to 1999. He went to Harvard Law School and graduated in 2006, and he taught at Harvard for three years after graduating from law school. Matt told detectives that he suffered from something called Gulf War illness. He had problems with psychosis, and in 2008, he told the police he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. During this initial time period, Matt's DNA was taken to compare to the Alameda County home invasion case involving the Smiths. In addition to the house, investigators searched the stolen Mustang. There were various things in the car that struck the detectives as odd. One was a black military-style belt with two ammo-style pouches that contained swimming goggles. Well, swimming goggles in South Lake Tahoe, well, that's not that odd. But what was odd was that the goggles had tape covering the lenses, so whoever would be wearing these goggles wouldn't be able to see a thing. But stuck to the goggles, detectives found a long blonde strand of hair stuck to the duct tape on the goggles. Now, we might not think anything of this if it was just a normal person, but this man was alleged to have broken into a couple's house with the intent to tie them up. So what gives? Also in the trunk of the Mustang was a super soaker water pistol that had been spray painted black and attached to the toy gun was a flashlight and a laser pointer. They also found more swim goggles, zip ties, and they found that there were various locations stored on the vehicle's navigation system. One of those addresses was on Utica Street in Huntington Beach, California. Well, there was a detective who couldn't stop thinking about that long blonde strand of hair on the goggles, and she got to searching for similar home invasion kidnapping cases to what happened in the failed Dublin case. And as she was searching, the detective came across a case from March 2015, just a few months earlier, right there in California. And this was a case where a woman said she had been kidnapped in Vallejo, California. There was just one little problem that the detective found. That woman who had alleged she had been kidnapped, Denise Huskins, she had been called a hoaxer after her boyfriend reported her missing and she showed up two days later. The Vallejo PD called Denise the real life gone girl. I mean, I'm going to explain it all to you, but listen to this. Sorry. Well, Robin Edie, it's just the latest twist in this case. It started out as a kidnapping for ransom in Vallejo, then the discovery that Huskins was alive and well in Southern California. Here's the first video we saw of Huskins today in the hoodie, alive and well, being escorted by police. Her relatives visibly relieved that she was okay today. And then earlier tonight, the Vallejo Police Department released a statement saying Huskins' disappearance was an orchestrated event and not a kidnapping. The police also revealed that FBI agents were preparing to fly Huskins back to Northern California where they could interview her about her ordeal. Only problem, now they cannot locate Huskins and they say she has also retained a lawyer. And just minutes ago, the Vallejo police held a news conference about the latest developments and had this to say about the couple. If you can imagine devoting all of our resources 24 hours a day, on what I, what I will uh, classify as a wild goose chase. Uh, it's a tremendous loss. It's disappointing. It's disheartening. And the fact that we've essentially wasted all of these resources for really nothing is upsetting. 
Police also say that Huskins and Quinn owe the community an apology. Now, police said when Quinn initially contacted them, he said that the kidnappers demanded $8,500 in ransom. They also say his story just didn't add up from the get-go. And while they cannot locate Denise Huskins tonight, they also say they have not taken Quinn into custody as of now. Edie? Well, Galston, this has taken so many twists and turns. Here's a look at the timeline of events. That was a news report about a press conference held by Lieutenant Kenny Park, and he was from the Vallejo PD. And well, for several months, the Vallejo PD filed Denise Huskins' kidnapping case as unfounded. But when the Alameda County deputies found that single blonde hair on the goggles and Denise Huskins told a story about how she had been kidnapped while forced to wear blacked out goggles, authorities needed to get the FBI involved stat. On Monday, March 23, 2015, at 1.53 p.m., Aaron Quinn called the Vallejo Police Department to report that between 3 and 5 a.m., his girlfriend of several months had been kidnapped from his very own bed. The 911 dispatcher was very confused. She asked Aaron why he had waited so long to report her missing. It was now almost 2 p.m. and he was saying a kidnapping happened at 5 a.m. And as the dispatcher heard the story, Aaron's story just sounded incredulous. Within minutes of the 911 call, Vallejo PD arrived at Aaron's house. There were no cars in the driveway. And when the cops made contact with Aaron, he seemed loopy and disoriented, almost as if he was getting over a hangover. Aaron told the cops he had been drugged and was just getting over the effects of the drugs, which is why he acted and felt that way. But he wanted to tell the cops everything he remembered so they could find his girlfriend, Denise Huskins. Aaron told detectives that the night prior, his girlfriend brought a pizza over to his house. The couple had started dating about seven months prior while working together as physical therapists at the Kaiser Hospital. Anyway, that Sunday night, they had their pizza along with a few beers and some whiskey. They watched TV and they went to bed at around 1 o'clock in the morning. That's when at about 3 a.m., Aaron and Denise were awakened by a man standing in the bedroom, holding a bright light to their eyes and ordering the couple to lay on their bellies and put their hands behind their backs. The intruder was calling the couple by their names, which really confused them. The man immediately zip-tied their hands behind their backs and he placed blacked-out swim goggles on the couple. Aaron was then taken to a closet and Denise was taken to a separate bedroom. During the attack, Aaron did not know how many perpetrators there were, but he remembered the voice of the man in the bedroom and then the voice of the man on the headphones. I know, I can explain the headphones. When Aaron was taken to the closet, he told investigators that the intruder put headphones on him and pressed play. On the headphones, it was a pre-recorded message giving Aaron instructions. It advised him to remain calm, answer questions when asked, and he was informed that he would be given one-fourth of a bottle of diazepam and NyQuil. The recording threatened that if Aaron didn't take the concoction, he would be forced to take it via needle. On the recording, there was one more warning. If you or your girlfriend don't follow instructions, things will start to hurt. First, you will receive an electric shock, and then we will cut your face. Aaron said that not only was he forced to sit in the closet and listen to the audio, but someone would occasionally come into the closet and check his vitals. One example that he gave is that he felt them put a blood pressure cuff on him and take his blood pressure. At some point during the home invasion, the intruder appeared confused by Denise Huskins. 
he thought her name was Andrea, but Andrea was Aaron's ex-fiance and they had broken things off months earlier. This made Aaron even more confused. How did the perpetrator know about Andrea? But that wasn't all the perpetrator knew. He knew where Aaron grew up. He knew where Aaron banked and he knew all types of things about Aaron. Another part of the recording informed Aaron that the perpetrators were a professional group that were there to collect financial debts. They told him that they planned on taking Denise, they would put up cameras in Aaron's house, and that they would be monitoring him once they left. So he was to stay home, not report the kidnapping, and have his phone readily available for instructions from the kidnappers. Before taking Denise, the kidnapper told Aaron to call out of work sick and to use Denise's phone to call her out of work sick as well. They also demanded information about Aaron's online accounts, including his email and his Wi-Fi password. Before leaving the house, Aaron was moved to the living room where the perpetrators made a square around him using duct tape and they instructed Aaron not to move. Above in the room, there was also a camera that hadn't been there before. Aaron was told they would be watching him. When the perpetrator left with Denise, he stole Aaron's car and put Denise in the trunk. The perpetrator also took Aaron's ACES laptop. Upon Denise's abduction, the effects of the medication hit Aaron and he passed out. When he woke up, he was scared. He wanted to call the police, but didn't right away. He kept looking at the camera, wondering if they were really watching him. He was paralyzed with fear for his life and for Denise's life. At one point, he checked his email and he had a message from the kidnapper demanding two separate $8,500 payments. Aaron called his credit card for an advance payment and they said they could only give him $3,500. Aaron felt defeated. So he called his brother who was in law enforcement and when he eventually reached him and told him what happened, his brother was like, dude, call the police. And that's when Aaron called the cops. By the time Aaron called it in, it was close to 2 p.m. Denise had been missing for several hours by that point. Down at the police station, the Vallejo PD were not really believing Aaron's story. So they asked him how he met Denise. They asked about any exes or any recent fights he had with Denise. And that's when Aaron admitted that the night before Denise's disappearance, the couple had actually gotten into a little bit of a spat over his ex-girlfriend. You see, Denise had found that Aaron had been secretly texting his ex-fiance and trying to reconcile with her. Denise was very upset and she wanted to know, listen, Aaron, are you interested in her or are you interested in me? This really stuck in investigators' minds and they began to think that Aaron basically got into a fight with Denise, he hurt her and then disposed of her body. Aaron kept telling them that he didn't do anything to her. He even agreed to a lie detector test. And the next day, they wired him right up. While Aaron was at the police station that night, investigators found Aaron's missing car. It was parked at the VA clinic parking lot on Mar Island. The doors of the car were locked and the keys of the car were found on top of the left rear tire. There was also red duct tape on top of the car. By the following morning, the news in Vallejo had taken Denise's missing persons case national. She was a beautiful white woman, blonde hair, clear eyes. She really looks like that actress, Blake Lively. Anyway, everyone's looking for Denise. There are foot patrols looking for her around the area where Aaron lived and all around Mar Island. The FBI is already involved. During the same time, Aaron had agreed to a lie detector test and he took it. But then he was told he failed the test big time. At that time, he was asked to fess up. 
They wanted to know, what did you do with Denise? Where did you put her? At that point, Aaron was confused beyond belief. He couldn't have failed the lie detector test because according to him, he wasn't lying. So he immediately requested an attorney. Aaron was then allowed to leave after being there for close to 24 hours. And then the most miraculous thing happened. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. At approximately 12.30 p.m., the day after Denise's kidnapping, a news reporter by the name of Henry Lee with the San Francisco Chronicle received an email. The email's subject line was Denise Huskins. The message read, quote, As stated, she will be returned safely tomorrow. We will send a link to her location after she has been dropped off. She will be in good health and safe while she awaits. Any advance on us or our associates will create a dangerous situation for Denise. Wait until she is recovered and then proceed how you will. We will be ready, end quote. Attached to this email to the reporter was a voice recording, and it was a recording of Denise Huskins. She sounded normal, unfazed. She stated that she was alive. She gave a top news story of the day to show she was alive that very day. And she even gave personal information that only really she could know. Reporter Henry Lee was stunned. He immediately sent the message to the police. Police then brought Aaron back in with his attorney to have him confirm Denise's voice. And Aaron heard it and was like, yeah, that's her. Like, that's her. Like, I, I'm telling you, I didn't hurt her. While he was there, Aaron showed the police his cell phone. And he said that while he was being grilled by police the night prior, he got two unknown missed calls and he wondered if it was from the kidnapper. The calls were already 24 hours old, but since Aaron had been held for questioning for over 24 hours, the cops had his phone and they had actually turned it off. The calls had come in at 8.31 and 8.33 p.m., the day Denise had been kidnapped. Authorities obtained a search warrant for Aaron's phone that revealed the phone number of the blocked number. Detectives learned the phone was a track phone that had been purchased on March 2nd, 2015 at roughly 5.39 p.m. at a Target in Pleasant Hill, California. The phone was activated on March 23rd, 2015, and they were able to track the calls made to Aaron's phone to a location in South Lake Tahoe. 
but more on this in a bit. The thing is that let me put this case in perspective for you. Denise went missing in the wee hours of Monday. Detectives didn't realize that Aaron got a call until Tuesday night. And by Wednesday morning, there was another plot twist in this case. Two days after being kidnapped on Mar Island in Vallejo, California, Denise reappeared at her mother's house in Huntington Beach, California. If you watch the Netflix documentary American Nightmare, you can actually see Denise just walking in broad daylight with a bag towards her childhood house. If you see this for the first time, it looks like she's taking a stroll around the block. She arrived at her mom's house, but no one was there. So she went to a neighbor's house and borrowed a phone. That's when she called her dad and said, Dad, I'm home. Denise's family was overjoyed. Denise's dad immediately called the Vallejo PD, who called the Huntington Beach PD, and they quickly met up with Denise at her mom's house. They started questioning Denise because, holy hell, the entire country had been looking for this girl, and here she was unharmed. Denise explained a virtually identical story that Aaron Quinn had told the Vallejo PD. But she added all the details on what had transpired in the last 48 hours. She said she was forced into Aaron's trunk and then the perpetrator moved her to a different car, which she believed to be a Mustang. She said she never saw the perpetrator's face and didn't recall how long she was in the car because they had drugged her and because of the drugs, she was in and out of it. She said she was brought to a quiet house and placed in a bedroom. The windows in that bedroom were barricaded. Denise was only allowed to take off her blacked out swim goggles when she was alone in this bedroom. But whenever the perpetrator was coming in, she had to put them back on. From the beginning of her kidnapping, Denise said she had been told she was going to be let go within 48 hours. But honestly, she wasn't so sure. Ultimately, Denise's missing persons case was getting so much media attention that the perpetrator decided not to release her in Vallejo. So they drove her to Huntington Beach because they knew she was from there. When Denise was telling the story of what happened to her, she did speak as if there was more than one perpetrator. But it does appear she came into contact with one perpetrator the most. She had heard different sounding voices at certain parts during her kidnapping, but she had never seen anyone else. Throughout her interview, Denise told investigators that the perpetrator gave her food, allowed her to shower, use the restroom, and even allowed her to brush her teeth. The shoes and water bottle that she was wearing when interviewed were actually provided to her by the perpetrator because if you recall, she was taken in the middle of the night. The FBI made arrangements to have Denise flown to her house in Vallejo because they wanted to interview her. But when it came time, Denise refused to make contact with police and she basically went incommunicado. And then, without ever getting any more information, Lieutenant Kenny Park, the spokesperson for the Vallejo PD, made the public statement about Denise that you heard earlier, basically saying the entire kidnapping was staged. Denise watched in hiding, in horror, as her name was being dragged through the mud. She immediately hired an attorney because the police was making her out to be a monster. And of course, the media took hold of the story and they began to compare Denise's disappearance to the 2014 movie Gone Girl, where the main protagonist conjures up a disappearance to spite her cheating husband to make it look like he killed her and hid her body. Yeah, I read the book. It was first a book by Gillian Flynn turned movie directed by David Fincher. Well, people kept comparing Denise Huskin's story 
to the real life Gone Girl. Mind you, Aaron Quinn wanted to see Denise because he was ecstatic that she had survived. But initially, the party's representatives, they thought it best that they didn't meet just yet because they wanted to keep their stories intact. And, you know, sometimes when you've been through a traumatic event, you tend to forget things, right? Only to be reminded by another survivor. And then when you retell the story, it sounds like you're embellishing because you have said something new that you didn't say the first time. Anyway. The morning after the Vallejo PD made that very public, disgusting statement, in essence, calling Denise a liar, Denise, together with her attorney, agreed to meet with police. During this interview, Denise reiterated that she was not lying, but she did want to tell the truth about something. She had been raped twice while she was in captivity, although she told the Huntington police that she hadn't. She didn't tell authorities initially because the captor had told her that if she revealed the rapes, he would come after her family. Denise indicated that the two incidents of rape were video recorded, and the captor did this in effect to threaten that he would release the rape videos on the internet if she ever revealed too much. During one of the rapes, the rapist told Denise that she needed to act like she was a willing participant. During this interview, Denise also explained why she was so matter-of-fact during her proof-of-life phone call. She said she was just coming off of being drugged. Denise explained that the perpetrator told her that he had done recon on the house prior to the kidnapping and that he had actually entered the house the day before the kidnapping, but then got cold feet last minute. That day, after her interview, Denise went to the hospital for a sexual assault response team exam. While Denise was meeting with investigators and getting prepped for the SART exam, reporter Henry Lee received another mysterious email. It was from a Hotmail account and the subject was Denise. The email went on for three and a half pages, but in summary, the email was from the alleged kidnappers. The writer described that he was part of a group of professional thieves. He said the group consisted of more than two, but less than eight people. The group are a bunch of techies and they've been operating out of Mar Island mostly as car thieves. The author wrote that after making the jump from property crime to personal crime, they feel, quote, deep remorse and horribly regret our slide into criminality. In particular, we are mortified of the impact it has had on Denise, end quote. The letter continued, quote, in what I suppose would be a case of reverse Stockholm syndrome, we were very impressed with the strength she showed and who she was as we passed the time talking to her, end quote. Eventually, during the three and a half page email, the author revealed the point of the email. You see, the captors were very upset with the cops for calling Denise a liar on national television. The note read in part, quote, what galvanized us was the travesty that is the police department's response to Denise, who in addition to being kidnapped was previously the victim of several horrifying crimes the details of which we will not share, end quote. Quote, Denise was absolutely kidnapped. We did it. We will provide incontrovertible proof of that and the Chronicle will break it, end quote. Towards the end of the email, the author wrote that he wanted Denise to know that the perpetrators were, quote, unspeakably sorry and ashamed for what happened. Tell her all threats against her and her family are lifted. She is safe, end quote. Attached to the email was a picture. It contained no identifying technological information, 
but it was a picture of a black spray-painted water pistol with a flashlight and laser pen taped on. And if you can believe it, this same reporter received another email two days later on March 28, 2015. And poor reporter Mr. Lee would receive many more an email, but he was diligent and provided them to the police. This next message read in part, quote, We kidnapped Denise and held her for ransom. The kidnapping was not a hoax and neither is this statement by us, the perpetrators, end quote. Now, this statement went on for 20 pages, 20 pages. In this statement, the perpetrator said the team intentionally confused Aaron and Denise during the kidnapping because they didn't want to get caught. But they are dumbfounded that the police still have not apologized to the couple. The email went on to say, quote, since the elaborate nature of the crime has led police to disbelieve it and prosecute the victims, we will now explain things from the beginning, end quote. Then he went on for 20 pages. But listen, the important thing is he attached pictures. He included pictures of one of the fake guns used, gloves, blood pressure cuffs, a white noise machine, burner cell phones, and other items he had stolen from previous break-ins. There was also a picture of the room where Denise was held captive. I guess the perpetrator was expecting the Vallejo PD to apologize to Denise and Aaron publicly. And when that didn't happen in response to his 20-page email, the perpetrator got mad. So on March 30th, 2015, Public Information Officer Lieutenant Kenny Park received a two-page email threatening an attack. The email told Park to apologize to Denise or else. The very next day, however, March 31st, Lieutenant Kenny Park got another three-and-a-half-page email. This time, the perpetrator apologized for threatening Park, and he admitted they weren't going to harm him after all. He said the criminal group has officially disbanded, so they won't hear from them any longer. I mean, is it just me, or does it sound like whoever is writing these emails is suffering from a serious mental break? So, alas, when the Alameda PD read up on Denise's story, they were like, we have got to make contact. And on June 25th, 2015, the FBI on Denise's case met up with the Alameda County detectives to exchange information on their investigations. With this additional information, the FBI conducted a second search of Mueller's residences. Of note, they found the ACES laptop at Matthew Miller's house, which belonged to Aaron Quinn, and one of the bedrooms in the South Lake Tahoe house where Matt Muller was staying was in fact the room where he kept Denise Huskins for 48 hours. In that same room, they found another blonde hair under the bed. During that search of the house, investigators found recordings that appeared designed to simulate people whispering to each other. So if you were ever left wondering if anyone else was involved, there was no one else involved. Matt Muller was just a crazy, evil... I don't even know if you can call him a genius, like just kidnapper and rapist. Investigators also found recordings of Denise's rape. Oh, and wait, the calls that came into Aaron's cell phone while he was being interrogated by police, if they had been tracked immediately, they pinged within 200 meters of Matt Muller's South Lake Tahoe house where Denise was being held captive. So, just four days after the Alameda PD put the pieces of the puzzle together for the FBI, the FBI filed a criminal complaint against Matt Muller. 
The criminal complaint alleged a violation of United States Code Section 1201, kidnapping. After his arrest, Matthew Muller was ordered to remain in custody. In September, the formal indictment on kidnapping charge came down. Muller's attorney fought hard to suppress the evidence in the case, specifically pointing to the cell phone. His attorney, no kidding, argued that the police conducted an unlawful search of Matt Muller's cell phone because, according to him, Muller didn't abandon his phone at the Smith house. He simply misplaced it. I know, I know. I had a good laugh reading a dozen pages of arguments as to how there was no real emergency to find the Smith home invasion perpetrator once he left the house because, according to his attorney, he was already gone. So the danger was over. The judge was like, go scratch and sniff. Denied. With that, I should mention that Mueller was facing federal charges for kidnapping Denise Huskins, but he was also facing state charges for the home invasion in the Smith case. So let me finish telling you about Denise's case before I tell you about the Smith case. In September of 2016, Mueller entered into a plea agreement with the feds where he pled guilty to kidnapping Denise Huskins. He also admitted to sending the emails to the Chronicle when he noticed that Denise was being called a hoaxer on the news. In 2017, for the crime of kidnapping, Mueller was sentenced to 40 years in federal prison, followed by five years of supervised release. I found that Matt Mueller was a strange criminal. First, in that he let Denise Huskins go, but then in his follow-up messages to the Chronicle and wanting to clear Denise's name. I found some formal court filings that gave some of Miller's background, and I wanted to take this time to share that information with you. Matthew Muller grew up in Fair Oaks, California. He graduated from Bella Vista High. In 1995, he joined the Marines, and during his four-year stint, he was stationed in California, Virginia, Japan, and the UAE. After the Marines, Muller got his degree from Pomino College. He graduated summa cum laude in 2002. During this time, however, Muller began experiencing bouts of depression and anxiety. He was treated with medication. Muller then began law school at Harvard. It was during his time in law school that he developed paranoia and started to think the government was tracking him. Despite his break from reality, and that's how his attorney put it, he graduated from law school and became a practicing California attorney. At some point, Matt Muller got married, he went missing, his wife reported him missing, he reappeared, he struggled with work. There's no information as to whether he was divorced or not. But in any event, at some point, Matt was given a different prescription for his depression and anxiety. Upon being fired from his job at a law firm in San Francisco, Muller stole the firm's database. I mean, he didn't steal it, he copied it. He said he copied it because he wanted to figure out who was tracking him. The firm was like, uh, no, you can't have that. And so they sued him and got it back. At one point, Mueller was working with immigration clients, but eventually he was disbarred from the practice of law. His attorney said that he was subsequently diagnosed with bipolar disorder. During the sentencing portion of the federal case, Mueller's attorney pointed to mental illness as a reason to show leniency on Mueller. They argued that 30 years in prison was enough and they even argued that now that Mueller is in prison and taking his medication, he feels amazing. Not surprisingly, though, in 2019, Mueller was admitted into a Napa State Hospital in order to take antipsychotic medication because he was ruled mentally incompetent during some state court proceedings. 
which we'll get to those in a second. If you're wondering about the rape charges in Matthew Muller's case, well, don't worry, they did eventually come, but they were charged by the state. In 2022, Matt Muller pled no contest to two counts of rape, but he pled guilty to robbery, burglary, and false imprisonment in the case against Aaron Quinn. For these crimes, he was sentenced to 31 years in state prison. This state sentence will run at the same time as his 40-year federal prison sentence. Now, let me remind you how today's episode started. Matt Moeller broke into the Smith's home. Well, before he ever saw the inside of the courtroom for the crimes against Denise and Aaron, he faced the state court for the Dublin, California home invasion. And in that case, Moeller pled no contest to attempted robbery, burglary, and assault with a deadly weapon. In my research, though, I was unable to find the sentence for that case. And I wonder if the sentencing hearings were combined for that case and Denise's rape case. In any event, everything that I find shows that Matt Moeller will serve 40 years total. He was 38 years old when he was arrested. So you might be wondering, where are Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn now? Well, after enduring everything that they did back in 2015, in 2016, they tied the knot. They went on to have two beautiful little girls and they co-wrote a book titled Victim F, From Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors. They also participated in the Netflix documentary about their survival titled American Nightmare. It's a three-part docuseries, and it is truly astounding. It's a must-watch. As for the Vallejo PD incompetence, after being ridiculed, the couple sued the Vallejo PD, and the case settled out of court for $2.5 million. Was this the most insane case ever or what? Well, just wait, because I have another Netflix special coming up. Not Netflix special, but you know what I mean? Like a case that I cover that's been on Netflix before. This case is going to come either next week or in the next few weeks. And of course, the perpetrator is a veteran. So be sure to tap that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. My resources for today's case included various federal court filings, the Netflix documentary, as well as articles found in Today.com, NBC Bay Area, Monterey Herald, Business Insider, The Guardian, and Reuters.com. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. This episode was made possible due to all of my Patreon and Apple Premium subscribers. The theme music was created by TyOps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Mama's working on her podcast. I don't want to.